This is a podcast from the Scottish Magazines Network, a research project about Scotland's independent magazine culture from the 1960s to the 1990s. To find out more, just search Scottish Magazines Network. The project is funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. Hello, and welcome to this first podcast from the Scottish Magazines Network, exploring the cultural and political magazines of the post-1960s period. I'm Dr. Scott Hames of the University of Stirling. In this episode, we're going to explore two magazines of the 1980s and early 90s, a wonderfully dynamic period in Scottish literature and politics between the devolution referendums of 1979, which failed, and 1999, which didn't. The first of these magazines is Edinburgh Review, relaunched in 1984, and stopping, for now, in 2014. And the second is Common Sense, which ran from 1987 to 99. When I think of the intellectual debates of this period, I think immediately of Edinburgh Review, which carries a special aura of excitement, but also real seriousness and authority. When I started researching the work of James Kelman here more than 20 years ago, probably about half of the truly essential articles and interviews that I needed to study were published in Edinburgh Review. And I'm still sending students to its increasingly fragile pages in the university library. As we'll be discussing in just a moment, the magazine was radical and exploratory and international, but it also had real clout as a linchpin of the new renaissance in Scottish writing, bridging the generations of Tom Leonard with those of Janice Galloway and Duncan MacLean. And it served as a key venue in which distinctive traditions in Scottish art and philosophy were being recovered and debated. True to its slogan by Alistair Gray, to gather all the rays of culture into one, It seemed that almost everything vital, expansive, and critical in Scottish cultural debate could be found between its covers. And the fact that Edinburgh Review was produced mainly by graduate students really is extraordinary. One of those students is our guest today. Murdo MacDonald is Emeritus Professor of the History of Scottish Art at the University of Dundee and the author of Scottish Art, a recent study of the intellectual origins of Patrick Geddes, and many pathbreaking works on Scottish Celticism, visual art, the intellectual historian George Davy, and much more besides. And it's striking how many of these scholarly achievements are directly prefigured in his work both on Edinburgh Review and in Common Sense. Murdo was closely involved with Edinburgh Review from its beginnings in 1984 and later became co-editor and eventually solo editor in 1993. A name you'll hear frequently in our conversation is that of Peter Kravitz, an American born in London who relaunched the journal in 1984, dropping new from its title. Just a quick word on titles, which can be a bit confusing. There was an earlier iteration of the review that ran from 1969 to 84. This was new Edinburgh Review, so slightly older than the Edinburgh Review we're discussing. And there was also a much earlier and very famous Edinburgh Review with the same title, edited by Francis Jeffrey, beginning in 1802. Reclaiming this storied name fits with the ambition of the journal Kravitz was putting together in 1984, which was about reappropriating as well as expanding the idea of cultural criticism. As Linda Gunn and Alistair McCleary write in their article, Wasps in a Jam Jar, which you can find via the project blog, Kravitz was drawn to outsider voices and themes of self-determination, and brought this vision to his overlapping role as a director of Polygon Press. The hub of all this activity is the Edinburgh University Student Publications Board, effectively a student-run publishing company. Running alongside Edinburgh Review, both in the intellectual life of the university and in the publishing career of Murdoch MacDonald, is Common Sense, a journal of theory and ideas 
probably best known today for its contribution to autonomous Marxism. You'll hear Murdo talk about the close links between these projects and some of the key social networks woven between them over the next 30 minutes or so. Murdo McDonald joined us from his home in Stornoway. Oh, great. Great to be here. Also asking questions with me was Dr. Alex Thompson, head of English at the University of Edinburgh, who was also an editor of Edinburgh Review a bit later in the 1990s and into the new millennium. Thanks, Scott. Great to join the conversation. One thing we're trying to do with this project is to map out the social worlds in which these magazines emerged. And we can't help noticing that a great number of them are connected to the University of Edinburgh. So I wanted to ask you, Murdo, whether there was something about the university and its social life in this period that seemed important as a particularly rich or supportive place in which to do this kind of work. Well, I, th I think the absolutely critical thing, and unfortunately it's now been lost, but what was present when Peter took over Edinburgh Review and all the rest of it, renaming it, and I, I should say, um, New Edinburgh Review in itself is also a very, very interesting magazine. I mean, even though there was a, a kind of step change when t Peter took over Edinburgh Review, New Edinburgh Review uh, has got some phenomenal stuff by, you know, Hamish Anderson, Owen Dudley Edwards, all the rest of it. The key continuity, of course, between New Edinburgh Review and Edinburgh Review was that the ownership body was Edinburgh University Student Publications Board. Now, that's crucial because what you actually had was a body that was owned by the Students' Association. The board was made up primarily of students with uh, administrators advising. And what that meant was that there was a real network of students who were able to actually bring together publications. And that was, I think, one of the absolutely fundamental things about, well, certainly Edinburgh Review, but also the whole complex of Polygon, because Polygon was also owned by Edinburgh University Student Publications Board. So you actually had this, this ownership structure literally owned both psychologically and financially by students of the University of Edinburgh. Unfortunately, that dropped out of the situation in 1988. But very fortunately, uh, Edinburgh Review and Polygon were picked up at that point by an incredibly talented individual who had just taken over Edinburgh University Press, namely Martin Spencer, who, who very sadly died a few years later. But um, Martin's contribution was absolutely massive. So I think in a, in a way, you have this grouping of individuals around the Student Publications Board, which included crucially Peter Kravitz, but also Jenny Turner. Now, Jenny was more involved with Edinburgh Review than the, than the Publications Board, but, but I mean, they all come to the same thing. Martin Spencer, Duncan McLean was someone else who was closely involved in what was known as Pubs Board. At that time, other people were closely linked through their work. For example, uh, Alan Jimison, who later takes over Edinburgh Review. There are a whole lot of really interesting folk involved. One thing that fascinates me about this period is that the pubs board is also making tremendous strides in publishing literary fiction. So some of the key writers of the 80s and 90s in Scotland are published by this tiny student publisher based at the university, uh, notably James Kelman, Janice Galloway, Agnes Owens, and several others. Was there a sense, Murdo, that the books and magazines produced by that publications board were caught up in a broader cultural and literary movement? Oh, uh, absolutely. And, and the key person here is, is Peter Kravitz. I mean, Peter takes over Edinburgh Review, but he also essentially, I mean, 
probably about 1985, he becomes convener of the publications board. And at the same time, he's um, going out of his way, essentially reading small magazines and finding really interesting people. Now, what you'll notice about Edinburgh Review is that the the first um, story in the first edition that Peter edited uh, is by Agnes Owens. And so, so Peter is the key person here. Now, Peter is the absolutely crucial person when it comes to James Kelman also. I mean, not, not while the Gyro is a Peter publication, uh, as is uh, Bus Conductor Hines, and as is uh, a, a Chancer, and then Jim, Jim uh, goes to Jonathan Cape after that point. So you've got Agnes Owens, you've got Jim Kelman, uh, and Jim actually takes Edinburgh Review in a Glasgow direction, and the whole Glasgow aspect is actually really, really important because it results in the Free University of Glasgow and massively important events like self-determination and power, which I think was 1990, and that's when Jim Kelman and Peter Kravitz bring together George Davy and Noam Chomsky in uh, the Pierce Institute in Govan, and that's all you know part of the wider network. And at the same time, I mean, although I'm talking about the the Edinburgh side and the importance of Publications Board as a, a student-run body, at the same time, you actually have issues being discussed in Edinburgh Review that link directly into Glasgow. For example, uh, this is around the time that the new Glasgow painting like Stephen Campbell and, and Ken Curry is, is coming forward. And there's actually a whole discussion around that, which brings in another key magazine editor, uh, Malcolm Dixon, who now runs a street-level gallery in, in Glasgow. But Malcolm Dixon edited the, I suppose, in a way, it's a very like Edinburgh Review, but with a visual arts emphasis rather than a, a literary emphasis. And Malcolm writes a few things for Edinburgh Review, and then Edinburgh Review and Variant become really quite closely linked in many ways through writers like Lorna Waite, for example, who went on to co-edit Variant with, with Malcolm. Uh, so the Glasgow aspect is very important here as well. But the crucial aspect in Edinburgh is Edinburgh University Student Publications Board, and then, despite the really tragic demise of the Publications Board, the fact that Polygon and Edinburgh Review were picked up by Martin Spencer of Edinburgh University Press. Now, Martin was, in, in many ways, very like Peter. They were both publishers of Major League Vision. And Martin supported Peter in a whole lot of potential series and almost certainly put, put forward a, a few ideas for his own. And this meant that, for example, there was a very interesting series called Determinations, which was a, a polygon publication under the wing of Edinburgh University Press, and that was edited by Cairns Craig, and it produced uh, a lot of significant books, including Craig Beveridge and Ronnie Turnbull's Eclipse of Scottish Culture. So um, there was actually a really important period of polygon while it was under the ownership of Edinburgh University Press, and while Peter Kravitz was essentially in control of it. I think I arrived in Edinburgh in 1993, and by the time I was a postgraduate, I knew quite a lot of the, the, the stories behind some of this. I was working with Cairns Craig and was later involved in Edinburgh Review, and there was a lot of um, kind of memories on the ground still of, of what had happened. And I think you've mapped out um, a kind of incredible 
fertile cultural space just thinking of what all of those people went on to do with Jenny Turner going on down to London with Duncan McLean setting up you know Clock Tower Press so a very fertile period but turning maybe more to your own contribution and your kind of long-term engagement with Edinburgh Review so you'd been involved as you said um, pretty much from the start of Peter Kravitz's relaunch um, of the journal and then became co-editor with him and then um, editor in your own right as these roles kind of changed around. And I guess I'm wondering whether you felt that you made a change of direction in the magazine? Was there a particular agenda which you wanted to kind of transform? Did you see yourself as kind of just carrying on continuity within the, the, the sort of editorial structures that were already established? And what you felt the kind of core aims of the magazine were in relation to this sort of wider cultural network? I, I think when I, when I took over from Peter, uh, it, it was actually quite a, an entertaining story because it, it, I really took over because it was meant to be a quarterly and it was at risk of becoming a little more than an annual. <laughs> so, so I just sort of told Peter that he should concentrate on Polygon and I'd do the review. So it was a sort of a strange editorial handover, but things like that happened at, at Polygon. But I suppose my own interest, ob- obviously I'm a, uh, interested in the history of Scottish art and art in general. And in a way, that's something that perhaps brought me into the review in the first place, because that, that was my, my first piece was on a, uh, the New Contemporary Show in Glasgow. And, uh, I mean, that was in 1984-5, I suppose it was published in early 1985. I'd been writing art criticism, it's probably just worth going back here before I get to my own contribution as editor, because prior to that point I'd been writing art criticism for an interesting magazine that came out every Edinburgh festival called Festival Times. Now the reason I mention it is that it is another Edinburgh University Student Publications Board publication. So that was my initial link to Publications Board, was actually through uh, Festival Times in the early 80s. And Festival Times is interesting because it becomes the model for the list. I never worked for the list, but the Festival Times um, uh, editor, Nigel Billen, I, I think was probably the first list editor. And you can see the design of the list actually closely linked. To that. Now, the other thing is that Polygon, uh, unlike many small publishers, actually had a very keen sense of design, and that's also relevant to me visually. Uh, and this gets into what I tried to do when I took over the review itself. But it became very important, particularly through a designer called Anne Ross Patterson, who did a lot of the uh, Polygon designs, both when it was Student Publication Board and also when it was uh, Edinburgh University Press, you'll notice that the first two issues that Peter did, that 6, 7, 8, and 69, I think, if I remember rightly, but the first the first two he did, the cover design is, is not actually that great. The third one, which is the Alexander Trochy issue, the cover has moved up massively, and that is Anne Ross Patterson's design, and she shifted things um, in a quite remarkable way, and that that really gave Edinburgh Review its visual identity, and I think it's worth remembering that the visual identity of small magazines is actually very important. But anyway, um, when when I actually took over from Peter, well, it's impossible to emulate Peter's contribution simply because it was so individual, so incredibly international, and so extraordinarily interesting. So I never actually had any thought of doing that. 
but I was nevertheless aware that there were certain focused things that perhaps I could do that Peter hadn't done. So I began to look at things like, um, I mean, this one one issue that emphasizes art in Scotland, um, not least from the point of view um, of the way that it, at that point, was uh, patronized and um, seen as faintly ridiculous. So, so uh, I was, uh, if you like, trying to put the other point of view. Similarly, um, my my book on Patrick Geddes has been mentioned, and in a way, the starting point of that book was the 1992 edition of Edinburgh Review, which was devoted to Patrick Geddes. And I think it's probably true to say that I, well, I quote a large number of the authors who I edited at that point in, in the book that I published in 2020. So, so that's the kind of thing I was was trying to do. I, I suppose my my focus, in a way, was more directly Scottish intellectual than Peter's, which would be, if you like, Scottish international. But obviously, um, it was very much a continuity, and part of the continuity was just keeping the design quality up. Again, we we moved into another phase eventually of of using the designer Neil Christie, who also made a, a wonderful contribution, particularly during Alan Jimison's editing of the review. That's really fascinating. I think it's, I mean, when I, I can remember looking at old issues of the magazine when I was working on it and trying to echo some of those values, particularly around the visual identity. I can think of a cover where I, where I was drawing on some of the ideas that had come in on earlier magazines. So that's, I think it's a really interesting and important side for us to think about. And again, also for the, for the project more widely, that that visual identity is so important. And just to be anecdotal, I think, and I think this speaks to the point about Polygon. I remember many years ago talking to Anne Beach, who was the commissioning editor at Pluto and had been for a long time. And she, she was reminiscing about being based in London, but getting these kind of beautiful and unusual looking books from Polygon. Um, and that that was really a big part of putting that kind of Scottish, you know, the new Scottish writing on the map was that the Polygon product was so good and so um, sort of stood out. So I think that's something that, you know, we, we might be at risk of underplaying. So it's really helpful for you to have stressed that. It sounds as if, yeah, rather than us thinking about your contribution as, you know, a radical change that... If we think about the motto of the review, the slogan to gather all the rays of culture into one, you're kind of ensuring that the visual arts and that the history of ideas and the intellectual culture of Scotland are fully part of that portfolio for the for the magazine. It's really fascinating to think about all the, the literary and artistic and political developments in Scotland today that we can trace back to these magazines. Um, and it seems very clear in retrospect that Edinburgh Review in particular was participating in some larger cultural or civic process. Um, but I wonder, Murder, whether that was a very self-conscious feature of the magazine, whether in putting issues together, you were aware that you were involved in a much broader process and condition. It was very obvious that a lot of things were happening. Uh, I don't think, um, certainly from my own point of view, I didn't feel particularly self-conscious about this being a moment in history or anything like that. I mean, in retrospect, um, one might be able to see it that way, but it's, but you know, just like whenever anything's happening, you don't really notice. On the other hand, what, what was very noticeable was the amount of material that was extraordinarily good, but somehow wasn't getting out there. Now, George Davy was a case in point. 
I've only recently become aware through Duncan Macmillan. Duncan Macmillan is actually a very important background figure here, not in the magazine terms, but in the number of people he inspired to look seriously at George Davy. Not myself, because uh, I had the good fortune to be taught by George, but I think it's true that uh, Richard Gunn, uh, for example, was inspired by a lecture by Duncan Macmillan. So that's another line that might be followed up at some point. It was very obvious that interesting people were not getting published. I mean, that that's really all there was to it. And that applies, obviously, to both Polygon and to, to Edinburgh Review. I mean, I was, when I became a student of George Davy, I suppose, in 1977, I found most of the philosophy department very, very boring. And then here was this extremely interesting man integrating continental philosophy and Scottish philosophy and Scottish culture. And yet he was just not really being taken seriously. Uh, and that's how, in a, a quite extraordinary, in retrospect sort of way, uh, two students and one lecturer, I mean, myself, Peter Kravitz and Richard Gunn, ended up editing The Crisis of the Democratic Intellect. We, we shouldn't really have been doing that. Well, I'm not saying we shouldn't have been doing that. Of course we should have. But it should have been done by someone else and by an academic press at least 10 years before, but it wasn't. And that's actually very, very similar to the way no one was taking writers like um, Jim Kelman seriously, but Peter did. And so you got Jim beginning his book publication in a way that is perhaps smoother than it might have been, thanks thanks to Peter. So, so you have um, a very, very similar cultural... <laughs> oppression, for want of a better word, on the George Davies side on the one hand and Jim Kelman on the other. And uh, it's very interesting that, of course, that when Jim became aware of George's work, he became extremely interested in it. So it, it wasn't really self-conscious. What was uh, very, very definitely obvious was the fact that there were all these interesting people and they just weren't getting out there. And that's really what publishing is for. Looking back, you've, you've highlighted already the Patrick Geddes issue um, and how important that was for your own development. And I think it's certainly true that that was undoubtedly very influential in getting Geddes more widely recognised and widely read as a, as a Scottish figure um, and as a figure who still spoke to kind of contemporary concerns. Are there other elements of the magazine, again, other debates or particular articles which seem to you to really stand out as you look back? For me, in a way, my editing of the review was gathering things together that I'd been thinking about already. Now, for me, 1986, for example, was particularly important because I was closely involved with the review, but I was also editing three books for Polygon, or at least trying to get them through the publication process. Now, one was The Crisis of the Democratic Intellect, the other was Alan Jimson's Schurmal, and the third one, which was the the reprint of Neil Gunn's Atom of Delight. Now, the importance of Polygon as a, a reprint publisher uh, needs to be looked at, because we were also shifting James Leslie Mitchell, i.e. Lewis Grassett Gibbon, into publication again, particularly his science fiction works. So there's there's a whole load of wider things, and they all in, interpenetrate uh, in in a most interesting way. 
and I think actually beginning to, if you like, excavate writers who'd been forgotten. I mean, Gunn wasn't forgotten, but his Atom of the Delight was. But also making sure that Kalman was in print, making sure that George Davy was in print, but also taking an interest in other key members of the George Davy generation at Edinburgh University. I mean, when he was a, a student, and that's people like Sawley McLean, which quite honestly, Edinburgh Review wasn't doing so much of because um, obviously the other key literary magazines like Chapman and, and St. Crastus were, were doing a lot on that front. And a key individual, which Edinburgh Review actually took a, a, a close interest in, was Stuart Hood. Now, Stuart Hood, again, is one of these figures who is a bit forgotten at the moment, but he really should not be. His um, his Storm from Paradise, a wonderful Benjamin title, talking essentially about Marxism and Lewis Grass at Gibbonland, won the Salter Prize in, I think, 1986 or seven, I suppose. Edinburgh Review and Polygon, they're, they're endlessly interesting. But on the other hand, I mean, it's worth pointing out that the same year that Common Sense came out, there were other, you know, independent things being done, not least um, Alan Jimison bringing out a broadsheet, uh, Briggestains, that same year. Duncan MacLean, a, a bit earlier, had edited Clan Jamfrey, and Alan Jimison and Duncan MacLean were both living in, in Queensbury around that time. So there are a lot of interesting networks. No, I mean, as you say, this is almost an embarrassing treasure trove of riches. And I think the, the kind of the recovery work that you're stressing and I think that ch that changing sense of the value of Scottish culture, uh, recent and the far distant past, is a real achievement of that decade, the 1980s. And uh, but it's always at risk of being eclipsed again. I think, and so that that sense that we need to recover the recovery work or just keep that conversation going is an incredibly valuable point and, and lesson. Edinburgh Review is a brilliant magazine to begin with because you can draw a kind of spiral diagram where it seems gradually to take in more and more and more of everything interesting in modern Scotland. Um, and so it's been a real pleasure to hear not only about the figures who we all know, but some of the figures who are perhaps less well-known today and who will certainly repay uh, rereading and, and further research. So in this project, we're especially interested in the connections between different magazines. And it's clear from what you said that there was a great deal of activity in the general orbit of Edinburgh Review. Now, the magazine Common Sense is perhaps one of the lesser known titles of the period. And this was billed as a journal of a wholly new type when it first appeared in May 1987. So what prompted this new venture and how did you come to be involved? Well, uh, Common Sense emerged from Edinburgh Review. Although I, I helped to start Common Sense, but I was always in, in a way more involved in Edinburgh Review. But there was a close interaction between the two. Indeed, they were very much complementary projects. Now, you can see that in Edinburgh Review issue 76, which contains the proposal for Common Sense. The same issue of Edinburgh Review also contains Richard Gunn's review of Ernst Bloch's Principle of Hope which had just been translated, and Bloch, obviously a good friend of Walter Benjamin and all the rest of it. The next issue of Edinburgh Review contains further discussion of Richard's view of Bloch by Richard himself in conversation with his PhD student, Werner Bonnefeld. Now, Werner is now professor in the politics department at the University of York, so you can see how networks are coming together here. I mean, Peter and myself, then Richard coming in, common sense very much being put together as a magazine, not so much to complement Edinburgh Review, but to do something 
different. I mean, something without a, a strong editorial structure, but attracting in really interesting thinkers. Following from the dialogue between Richard and Werner on Bloch, there's actually a response to their dialogue by Edinburgh Review's key writer and literary editor, Jenny Turner. Now, that's all, if you like, about common sense type topics, but actually in Edinburgh Review itself. So that's how close the two actually are. Jenny Turner, of course, is now a key writer for the London Review of Books. So again, you can see that network developing. That issue of Edinburgh Review, the issue 76, was dated May 1987, and that's exactly simultaneous with the um, first issue of Common Sense. Uh, and that first issue of Common Sense reproduced the statement published in Edinburgh Review, which was uh, essentially about how Common Sense would be a journal of an entirely new type without a, an editorial structure, but just producing itself, so to speak. So things did not have to go through uh, any kind of editorial process, but could simply be produced straight off. If you see it just as a more experimental end of Edinburgh Review, you also have to see it as a more experimental end of, of Polygon as well, although it had nothing formally to do with either Polygon or Edinburgh Review, although uh, obviously in, in personnel it did. And at that point, I mean, Common Sense starts in 1987, Published in 1986 was George Davies' second major book, The Crisis of the Democratic Intellect. Now, that had been edited by myself, Peter Kravitz, and Richard Gunn. And Common Sense takes its title from George Davies' exploration of Thomas Reed's notion of common sense. So it's very much a philosophical notion rather than a person-in-the-street type notion. So, so that's the other um, lineage of Common Sense. I mean, it comes out of both a review and through, and through um, a major new book by George Davey. I mean, that's really interesting to me, I think, because the, the idea of common sense has come to have a very, it's kind of associated now with that idea of a moderate enlightenment, cutting off some of the more radical kind of strands. So that link between common sense, the idea of an experimental, almost a radical wing of Edinburgh Review, which was undoubtedly kind of left of centre anyway, pushes the idea of common sense in quite a challenging direction. Is that fair, do you think? Yes, I think it is fair, but it's, it's not really pushing it. It's also reappropriating it from the much more philosophically interesting area of common sense, which is both referring to, if you like, sense of community, but also referring to the sense that would make sense of all other information. I mean, a common sense in that sense. In a way, it's almost the reverse of, if you like, the common sense view of common sense. I mean, that idea of reappropriation is really interesting as, as, as well, I think. I was just actually, while we were talking, flicking through issue 76, and I could see that in the notice that kind of proposes common sense, you guys say, um, initially its circulation could be minimal, today a readership of half a dozen, and tomorrow the world. And I wondered if you have a sense of how many people you did reach, or the magazine did reach, or whether it w was going to remain a kind of coterie publication. I really don't know. Richard Gunn would be the person to ask that question to. Uh, I think what's interesting is that it's now got an absolutely unexpectedly large re reach. I mean, I notice uh, it was mentioned in Ben Jackson's book on, you know, the political side of Scottish nationalism, etc. And, and I think that's actually a very interesting issue about the reach of small magazines in general. Obviously, funders like Arts Councils or Creative Scotland are, are always trying to 
see a, a readership figure and all the rest of it. And I've always regarded that as more or less irrelevant. What, what matters about small magazines is obviously that as many people as possible read it at the time. But, but it's really uh, what Peter once said to me when we were really feeling that we were hardly getting the magazine out to many people at all. This was Edinburgh Review rather than Common Sense. And Peter said, well, at least it will be an archive. And of course it is. And just getting authors into print, getting thinking into print, and getting it solidly in there so that people can come back to it in later years is, is just so important. And that's one thing that small magazines are about regardless of their circulation. And I'm sure Common Sense falls into that category too. I mean, I think it's interesting that Common Sense has been digitized and is widely available now probably than these back issues of Edinburgh Review um, currently are. And I think that's one of the questions that Scott and um, Malcolm's project is nudging itself gently towards is how that might be changed. I just wondered if you have a favorite or most memorable reflection on Common Sense, a particular article or debate that you felt was really significant. From my own perspective, which was, of course, uh, I mean, at that time I was writing art criticism for the Scotsman and all the rest of it. So I was very much concerned in developing the the Scottish visual culture side of things. And common sense actually, I suppose in its real purpose, which was to allow people to do things that perhaps were not immediately accepted elsewhere. I don't mean that they wouldn't be acceptable. I just mean that if you wanted it out, you could put it into common sense immediately. And uh, in common sense number 12, for example, I wrote some of my early serious thinking about Scottish art. And actually in, uh, what's it called, art, the social construction of self and the classical tradition in Scotland. But actually in that same issue, which I suppose dates from 1992, in that same issue, there's a book review of a polygon book. I, I mean, we'd managed to begin to get George Davies' publication moving again uh, through the crisis of the democratic intellect. But then a book that I edited for Polygon was Davies, The Scottish Enlightenment and Other Essays. Uh, and that receives a substantial uh, review from Richard Gunn. I suppose my, my favorite thing about Common Sense is that it, it just allowed all the debates to be taken further and helped myself to develop my own thinking and I think a lot of other people to develop theirs. The Scottish Magazines Network is supported by the Arts and Humanities Research Council.